Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. So if I could have you open your Bibles, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a verse that everybody knows, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Everybody's heard the verse, you might not know where it is, but 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 in just a minute. So today is... Uh, uh, first of all, I wanted to say that today is our last day before our trip, and or last Sunday anyway, before our trips, so we're leaving this week, and at the end of the service, we really want to have you pray for us, and I just wanted to say thank you to so many people who have just come up and said so many positive things to us, and prophetic words, and Bible verses, and uh, just uh, pr- praying for us, and we just really, really feel that support, and Thank you to the people that have even given us offerings and um, asked us to share this with somebody as the Holy Spirit gives us uh, uh, direction and uh, made things to send and stuff like that. We re- I re- really believe with all of our heart that this is the right time for us to go, and it, it obviously is, is a, a time where there's not peace in that part of the world, but we have, as Jerry shared with me this morning, a verse very strong peace from, from the Holy Spirit that this is the right time for us to go and that the church there and our family there really needs the encouragement and the ministry that we'll bring, and we're bringing that from, from all of us. So anyway, we're going to have you pray for us at the end of the service. But the other thing I wanted to tell you about today is today is the first Sunday in Advent. And Advent is not something uh, when I was growing up that we really made a big deal out of because I grew up in a Baptist church and it's kind of more of a Lutheran, Catholic, sort of more traditional type of thing. And I think people mentioned it, but we didn't have the candle and lighting the candle and all of those things. Some of you have grown up in that tradition and you know what I'm talking about. Others of you have zero idea what in the world is Advent. But Advent is, it was always, to me, just the beginning of the Christmas season. But really, what Advent is, and this is the first Sunday in Advent. So there are four Sundays in Advent that lead up to Christmas, and Christmas is five weeks away. And yes, we do have a, a church here on Christmas morning, and I even have a message I'm going to share with you by video <laughs> on Christmas morning. And... Um, and we will have church here on, on New Year's Day also, and we have a lot of good ministry lined up uh, while we're gone. Um, but Advent, the word comes from a Latin root, and, and it means a coming. Uh, and and like, like the, well, it just means that, coming. Advent means coming or an arrival. And uh, in Advent, we celebrate and we remember and we the idea of the Advent or the Christmas season is to prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord. And there are three comings of the Lord. The first is his coming at his birth, uh, what we easily recognize at Christmas. The second is that coming when he's born in our hearts, when we are born again, we receive him in our hearts and in our lives. And the third coming is his coming again, when his kingdom comes. And each one of these comings, uh, each one of these advents is the kingdom of God because he's the king. And one of the moments in the Christmas story that always, uh, the whole thing touches me, (laughs) but one of the moments that really touches me is uh, how those kings traveled all the way from the east. And if you read the Bible uh, correctly, it didn't really happen. They weren't, they didn't come to the manger, okay, Uh, most likely, that they came when he was about two years old because Herod gave the order to kill all the boys that were under two years of age. And it says that they were living in the house at that time already. But, that, but just that in itself, that for those two years, I mean, it took a long time to travel that far with the kind of treasure that they had and on camels and all these things and following a star, having no idea where they were going, that they, these kings would come from the east to bow down and worship him. Can you imagine how all the people in Bethlehem, how all the people in the Jerusalem area must have just been in shock 
you know, because this was a, a big event for this kind of uh, caravan to arrive in the city with these strange-looking and powerful and wealthy kings, these magi, which is where we get the word magician from because they were known to be people of great wisdom, the wise men, and that they came and all they did was bow down at the feet of this toddler baby and offer these uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to him because he is born the king of kings. He is born to be our savior. So wherever Jesus is, that's where the kingdom of God is, right? And so Advent is about the kingdom of God, uh, his birth, uh, our new birth, his birth in our hearts, and his coming again. All of these concern the kingdom of God. So the title I have for today's message comes from what John the Baptist preached, and we'll see that Jesus preached also, and it may sound like not such a joyous thing because we don't like the word repent. I mean, I'm just being honest. Nobody likes the word repent. Uh, it seems to hold these negative connotations for us, like you're a sinner and you need to repent, and perhaps we're at fault in that because we've preached it that way. But the word repent is such a powerful word. I really believe in my heart the Lord's been speaking to me that this time as we prepare to go into 2023 is a time for our repentance. Some Christians say, well, I don't need to repent because I repented when I received Jesus. But that's not what we see in the scripture. That repentance is a way of life, and, and, and we'll see that today. It's a way of correcting our minds, of renewing our minds, of, of coming back daily to the word of God. And it's, it's never too late for us to repent. It's, we see so many examples in scripture in the ministry of Jesus that no matter what a mess a person's made of their lives, that Jesus calls them to repent. I mean, you even have in John chapter 7 the story of this woman caught in adultery and apparently not a, very, not a woman with very high morals. And everybody wants to actually stone her. And you know, you know the story. And Jesus said, let the one who's, who's never sinned cast the first stone. But the, uh, the amazing part of that story is at the end, he, he just says to her, go and sin no more. I mean, he doesn't say you need to come in for counseling, uh, you know, for a few months. You know, you need to go see a psychologist. He just says, go and sin no more. It's just that simple. Just turn your heart and your mind back to the plan that God has for your life. And this is a word that the Lord's been speaking to me. It's a time of refreshing. It's a time of turning back to the Lord. And that's what's meant by repentance. So the title of the message this morning is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And 2 Chronicles chapter 7, very familiar verse of scripture to most Christians in the United States because we've been quoting it for decades. Since I was a little boy, we had songs about it, uh, talked about it, everybody's always been talking about it. And I was reminded of this last week uh, when one of my dear brothers here in the church uh, shared this and had this on his heart. And something jumped out to me from this verse. It says in verse 13, uh, God says, and this is at the time that Solomon is dedicating the temple to the Lord, right? And in, in answering Solomon's prayers, God says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, well, we, we would say, yes, that's happened to us here. I, mean, I went to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma not very long ago, and I've never seen the Arkansas River, which is a huge river. I mean, it's a huge river. And you could walk across it right now. There's, so, there's been so little rain. But he says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, well, gas prices make it sound like that's happening too, and everything else around us. Or if I send pestilence among my people, we just had COVID. And I mean, all this stuff applies to us, right? And he says, and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So this is a verse that's so often quoted that we believe, that we stand on, that we pray according to. But there's a part of this word, verse uh, that, that is really, really important, and it's at the beginning of it. And the first thing is this, is to recognize that he's not saying this this is not spoken to the people of the world. They're a part of the land also. They live on the same land together with us. But this isn't a message of repentance sent to the people of the world. This is a message of God calling his people 
to repentance, of God calling his people to seek their face and saying that I will heal your entire nation if you will turn back to me. And so that's the first part. The second thing I want to point out that really is important here is that I think we too seldom focus on is the part about humbling ourselves. Because the prayers and the seeking of his face, they really aren't, they don't really don't mean anything if we don't humble ourselves uh, before God. You know, he spoke this at the dedication of the temple. And uh, over a thousand years later, Jesus came into this temple, which really wasn't even the same temple. This one had been destroyed because God punished them. And then they rebuilt it and God blessed the new temple. And when Jesus came into the temple, he walked into the temple twice in the gospel stories. And you know that he cleansed the temple out. That he made, he, he, he went over to the curtains, pulled the cords down, made whips, and started whipping people and driving them out of the temple. And he had this great zeal on him, right? So we see that a thousand years goes by, and even though God told them what they needed to do, such a simple thing for the land to be healed, they apparently never really humbled themselves before God. So he goes, he finds all their tables with their, as we call it today, merch, and starts kicking them over, throwing it all out. And what does he say? He says, all that I ever wanted is for my father's house to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people, a house where people meet with my father, where they know me, where I can fellowship with them. And it can't be exclusive for some nations and other nations are kicked out, for some people and other people aren't allowed, but a house of prayer for, for all uh, nations. So I want to look at some reasons why uh, some, some characteristics of the pride of the Jews at that time, okay? And I hope that we'll see our own pride in that also and talk to you a little bit about this humility and then share what I believe that God uh, wants us to achieve through that, what he wants to do in our hearts. So go with me over to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read 12 verses here, Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the message that John the Baptist preaches is so simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a call to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a call for God to heal our land, for God to bless us. It's a really positive thing, okay? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 3, it says, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, this about John the Baptist, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So as we celebrate Advent, remember the third aspect of Advent is the second coming of Jesus. And that's what our focus should be on, that Jesus is coming back. And so this coming uh, Jesus into our hearts is something that we need to renew and refresh in our lives every single day so that our hearts are prepared, that we have enough oil to make it through the night until his coming and we're ready to meet him at his coming. So it's a making ready of the way of the Lord to make his paths straight, to make it so that it's not difficult for Jesus to do what he wants to do in our lives. Think about that. I mean, how many difficulties do we put in the way of Jesus? And he doesn't give up on us, and he forgives us, and he keeps working, but couldn't we make it easier for Jesus to have his way in our church, for him to have his way in our lives? Couldn't we be making his paths straight by our obedience and by our willing hearts, by our humility before him? Every parent understands what I'm talking about because parents get frustrated with that. You know, you're never going to give up on your kids or grandkids or whatever. But, but you feel like, man, couldn't they just make this a little bit easier? Couldn't they do their homework or do this? Why, why do we have to have this struggle all the time? Because all I want is their best. I have their best interests at heart, right? And that's us being evil parents, as Jesus said. So how much more the Father in heaven? In verse 4, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So we see that repentance is something that brings forth fruit into our lives. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. And do not, it is saying, I'm sorry, but it's not just that. It's, it's bringing forth fruit into our lives. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, listen to this, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist is preaching about the coming or the advent of Jesus, of the Messiah. And he's warning the people that they need to be prepared. And he's working to prepare them for that. And we see this great humility about John the Baptist, even in uh, the description of his clothing, what he ate. And the only thing about that that really brings out his humility is that he was so dedicated to his ministry that he was not going to allow anything to hinder him in doing that ministry. He was always camping so that he could be on the move and out there where the people are and baptizing them in the water. But we see his humility also in the words that he says that I'm not worthy you know, to even untie his, his sandal for him. And he really means these things. You know, It might seem like a false humility until we read the whole story of John the Baptist and how at the very end he lays down his life for the gospel that, that he preached. So we know that this was a real humility in his life. And yet what we don't see about John the Baptist is that he's a weakling, okay? Humility is strength. Humility is power. He's not a weak man. He's a very powerful man. He has no fear, and he's serving God with all of his heart, but his heart is very humble before God. He turns to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come out to uh, repent and be baptized, and it's obvious that they're coming just to make a show because this is the most popular show in town, the John the Baptist Circus. Everybody's going out there to be get baptized. There's a big revival. So they come out there also, and he turns to them immediately, and he says, you need to bring forth the fruit of repentance. You're just a brood of vipers. And the way he describes them is this, that they have this thing that we call exceptionalism. Okay? A Jewish exceptionalism. That we are better than everybody else on the planet. Because they say, we have Abraham for our father. Now Jesus is going to talk about this later also. But John points that out to them. And says, God can raise up from these stones children for Abraham. And this is something very acute in our nation today. Because we pray for the salvation of our nation is this American exceptionalism and this idea that we're Americans, uh, we're the children of uh, George Washington or whatever, the father of our country, you know, and, and, and it's good to have, I'm not even going to get into this because it's a whole different sermon, but it's wonderful to love your country. Otherwise, why do you want to pray for the healing of our land? Of course, that there's a right patriotism, patriotism, a right love for country, a right love uh, for family. You know, I love my family more than any of your families. Sorry, don't mean to hurt your feelings. It's just the way it is. And you love your family more than you love my family. But I don't think that we are exceptionally better than every family on the planet. You know what I'm saying? That there, there's this, this, this understanding that the house should be a house of prayer for every nation. It doesn't matter what color their skin are, is. It doesn't matter what their native language is. It doesn't matter whether they came, where they came from. It really doesn't even matter if they came here legally or illegally. You know, and I'm not for fluid borders. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about there are people who need to know Jesus. It doesn't matter how they got here. The doors are open for everyone. That the house is a house of prayer for, for all nations. So he attacks or comes against this Jewish exceptionalism 
where they say, we have Abraham as our father. And they base their salvation on that, that we have Abraham as our father. But God would say today, I can raise up from the stones in the desert here, children to George Washington if I need to do that. You know, that's not what makes you an American. That's not what makes you a man or a woman of God. And so he comes against this pride that they have. That's what he's coming against. and, And he's calling them to humility. He's calling them to bring forth the fruit of repentance. And a few of them did, by the way. Nicodemus will come to Jesus at night. You know, Joseph of Arimathea, some of the others are named. And finally, we have Saul, the the Pharisee of Pharisees, who repents before God. And he had this Jewish exceptionalism so strong on the inside of him that Saul would write that I was a Jew of all Jews, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel. I kept the law completely. I was the greatest guy on planet Earth. And then I realized that that's all nothing but trash. (laughs) I don't need any of that. None of that brought salvation to me. None of that brought anything to me. So pride is what was blinding them to the truth, and pride is what blinds us to the truth today, and it closes our ears to the voice of God. Now, if you sit there and you think, well, I'm not proud, I'm a humble person, then you probably are proud. And I want to read a quote to you right now uh, from uh, C.S. Lewis. It's from the book Mere Christianity. And talking about pride, he says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, like John the Baptist, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy and swarmy person, whatever swarmy means, who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, that is two. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. John says in his uh, first epistle that if you say that you are without sin, then you are a liar and you make God to be a liar. That the first step in humility and what John the Baptist is calling them to is to realize our own pride. Because remember this 2 Chronicles 7, 14 thing isn't going to work if we don't humble ourselves first. Do you think the Jews had been praying? They had been praying for a thousand years better than anybody on the planet. They prayed all the time before Jesus came in and cleansed the temple. Do you think that they had not sought God's face? They thought they were seeking God's face, didn't they? They were offering up sacrifices every single day. They were very dedicated to God in that sense, and especially since the building of the second temple when the Pharisees all arose out of that whole movement, that religious fervor, that national fervor. I mean, these people felt about their nation the same way we feel about the United States of America. They loved their nation. But there was something missing in them, and that was humility. They had not humbled themselves before God. So they weren't really seeking his face, even though they thought they were seeking his face. And so John came calling them to repentance. And remember, John, Jesus said, is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. The last message of the Old Testament is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let me talk to you just for a minute about repentance to kind of hopefully uh, do away with all the preconceived ideas about this word repent. In the Greek, the word repentance is meta. Nia, metania, and it simply means meta, got a metaverse now, right? Meta is kind of a word that people are using these days. Meta, the Greek prefix, just, just simply means to change something. It means to take it into a different version. And nia is simply your mind. All it means is change. When he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you could translate that into English like this. Change your mind 
change the way you're thinking. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you don't even see it. You don't even realize what God wants to do in your life. You don't even know how much God loves you and how he wants to bless you. Change your mind and start thinking the way God thinks. It's a change of mind, and it's a change of purpose. I'm not going to open it, but in Romans chapter 12, most of you know these verses. It says to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And when you renew your, that renewing of the mind, Romans 12, 2, that's just repentance. Be transformed. It's an ongoing work in our life. It's not something that happened once. If we're not adjusting our minds to the way God thinks, and, not, and if you don't know how God thinks, then you just haven't been reading this book. Okay, there's actually 66 books here. Read them. You'll know how God thinks. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He will teach you and guide you into all truth. Don't make any excuses. John also says in his first epistle that you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, and you don't even need anybody to teach you. You know the Word of God. And if you've forgotten it, come back to the Word of God and start thinking like God thinks. Because when we renew our minds to God's Word, then we are transformed. Do you know that the Greek word for transformation there is metamorphosis? It's where we get our word metamorphosis. And you know what a metamorphosis is because you remember in school about those little, how those butterflies come out of those cocoons, right? That's the only context we ever get that word in for the most part. You know, and everybody says you got the little poopa or whatever that thing's called and it goes through those four stages and boom, it's a butterfly. I mean, it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's completely different from what it was in the beginning. It's a metamorphosis. It's a form, a new form, a new creation in Christ Jesus. But as new creations in Christ Jesus, Christ has been born into our hearts. We can get stuck in our flesh if we don't keep renewing our mind to God's word, and then we get what? Conformed to the world. Okay, every kid that's in school has a desire to be conformed to the world. Did you know that? And most of, I'm not going to say most, every single one of us in our flesh would rather conform to the world because it's way easier than being transformed. You know, it's way easier just to be like everybody else, to sing the songs everybody sings, to know the this, to know the that, to understand this, to understand that, talk the language that they talk. It's just way, it's way easier. You know, we don't want to stand out in the crowd. But God is saying, I want you to stand out in the crowd. You are my people. And how will they know me unless they see you standing out in the crowd. Jesus said that everyone will know you're my disciples because you love one another. Loving one another isn't conformity to the world, is it? Because the world hates one another. But when we love one another, then we stand out from the crowd. And people see Jesus in us. And it begins with a renewing of the mind. And it says there in Romans chapter 12, that this is what is pleasing to God, that we are pleasing to God. You know when it says to seek my face? It says humble yourselves, pray, and seek my face. What do you think the face of God is? We don't really use that phrase that much, but I think you still feel it and understand it. It's kind of an old English, I guess, or an old way of thinking. But, you know, we talk about uh, somebody loses face, you know, that then that, that means that they've done something that's really embarrassing, right? And, and they're embarrassed to be around people because they've failed in some public way that people have seen that. And we talk about saving face. You know, when somebody saves face, they're trying to make up for something or cover up something so that people don't see that, right? And the face of a person in the biblical understanding is that person's persona. It's who he is. So when we talk about seeking the face of God, we could say it like this, seeking the pleasure of God, seeking God's smile, seeking God's approval. He says, if you will humble yourselves and you will pray and you will seek my face and then you will turn from your wicked ways, so at the beginning and the end you've got repentance. Wow, that's kind of a hard thing to, to admit also. My ways are wicked. I mean, just take the, don't, don't point the finger at somebody else and say, man, they, they need to hear this message. 
Just point it at yourself. Are there wicked ways in my life? What's a wicked way? Well, a wicked way is a way of destruction. A wicked way is a way that's not God's way. And to turn from that wicked way. Just seek my face. Seek my pleasure. So it brings pleasure to God. It pleases God. It's acceptable to God when we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, when we repent. Don't allow repentance to be something uh, that you've got you know, on the shelf somewhere at home just in case you do a really big sin someday. You know, let just repentance be a way of life. Just renewing my mind to God's word and coming back to him and, and confessing my sin before him uh, because he's faithful and just and he will forgive us our sin and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will turn his face toward us. He will make his face to shine upon us. You know that blessing? We've got a great song based on that Old Testament blessing. He will make his face to shine upon us. But nothing's going to happen if we don't humble ourselves before him. So here in Matthew uh, chapter 4, go over to Matthew chapter 4 now, and verse 17. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It's, uh, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's right after he's gone through the temptation in the wilderness when Satan tempted him. It's after he's been baptized. So he's baptized by John. Then he is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted of the devil. And when he comes back, it says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you notice this. The Old Testament ends with a phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the New Testament begins with the exact same words. Jesus is preaching the exact same message. He doesn't come up with some new innovation. He preaches the same words that John the Baptist preached. And he continues to preach them throughout all of his earthly ministry. And they're preached to us today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he says to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed after him. They go over to chapter 5, verse 1. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He begins the Sermon on the Mount here. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Notice he's teaching the disciples. The crowds just get to listen in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, as it says in the New American Standard. You know, the King James says, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I just want to, I just want to share some things with you based on, on these verses that we, we just read. So when Jesus begins his ministry, he preaches the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as he does his first teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, right, he begins the teaching with the same words, basically. He talks about humility. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those people who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. To be poor means to be needy, right? Blessed are those people who recognize their need for Jesus and that they cannot make it through a day without him. That they are not exceptional. They're no different from the Chinese or the Russians or the Ukrainians or the Nigerians or anybody else that lives on this earth. We won't make it without Jesus. We need Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Is there a reason to mourn today? I believe if we really humble ourselves today in our nation, then we will have a spirit of mourning upon us, M-O-U-R-N. There are things to weep over in our nation today. There are things that we have to stop sweeping under the rug in our hearts and just say, well, that's just the way it is. It's never going to change. Maybe it never will change, like a person that's dead. Well, then we should mourn over that, over the things that are lost, and cry out to God 
You know, when Daniel turned to God in the book of Daniel, he fasted and prayed for 21 days, and God heard his prayer, and God sent the answer to him. And when the angel came, he said, I actually was sent from the very first moment you turned your heart towards me, but there was a great battle going on in heaven. And so it took him 21 days to get there. But read his prayer sometime. All he prays about is, God, forgive us. We've failed you. We've messed everything up. He turns his heart in humility before God, and he mourns before God. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The word blessed, of course, just means exceedingly happy. So you're happy when you mourn. You're happy, poor in spirit. And he says, blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. It's important to um, tell you something about being meek once again. I said this about John the Baptist, but to be meek means to be humble or very gentle before God. Meek does not mean weak. Someone who's weak is not meek. People think today that to be humble, to be meek, to be gentle, and I think they thought this then. That meant to be weak. But we have these great examples in the Bible. And probably the greatest of all is in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. It tells us that Moses, you know, the Charlton Heston guy, Ten Commandments, all that stuff. I mean, if you watch that movie, you know, and Charlton Heston doesn't do Moses justice. And Charlton, you know, he was a real man. You know, I mean, you know I've watched Charlton Heston in those movies. It's like, ah, that's a real man, a John Wayne type of guy. But that doesn't even do Moses justice. This guy was a man's man. He was a man of high education, a man of high culture. He was a man who knew how to be rich, and he was a man who knew how to be poor. And he hung on for 40 years in the wilderness when nobody knew his name, but he still believed in the greatness that God had called him to. This is a real man, but it tells us in Numbers that he was more meek than anybody on the earth, that he was the most humble man on the earth, and he never talked about it. His heart was just so open to God. To be meek, in one way of understanding it, it really means to be completely teachable, that your heart is just an open book to God, and he can do whatever he wants to do in your life, and you're okay with it. You're going to be good with it, because if it's God's will, then that's what I want. That's that, that humility. And you know, Moses, for Moses, the beginning of that really was to recognize his own pride. I don't know what was in his heart at that time that he killed the Egyptian, if you remember the story, but he ran for his life. I don't think he had to run for his life. He was so powerful in Egypt, I think he could have got away with it. He was so rich, I think he could have got away with it. If you're rich and powerful, you can get away with a lot of things. I don't think he ran for his life because he was just afraid of getting trouble. I think he ran for his life because it, 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 it just instilled terror in his heart that I could be so proud that I would strangle the life out of another human being for no other reason than he just was mean to my Hebrew brothers or something like that. He feared that the monster that he could become. And it took 40 years in the wilderness. But when he comes out of the wilderness, he's a different Moses. And it says that he's the most humble man on earth. Then we got Peter, we got James, we got John here. Look at the people that Jesus calls. These aren't weak people. You know, you're not going to be weak if you're a fisherman. These guys are doing hard physical labor every single day. And they were very successful at it. And you know what kind of guy Peter is, because, man, he's just all over the Gospels. Poor Peter. He just got picked to be like David in the Old Testament. You just get to hear every bad thing about his life, you know. And it's, a, it's so wonderful for us, though, because we can see ourselves in Peter. And James and John, they had such a bad temper that Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. Jesus says, you know, we're going to have a Bethlehem village and we're going to invite people in the town. And then somebody, just if we compared it to us, somebody from the town came over here and threw an egg at the church and said, I hate your Bethlehem village. And then James and John were the ones that went out, God, do you want us to call down fire on Yerington and destroy this entire city? And Jesus is like, just calm down, dudes. It's, it's like, you guys got such a bad temper. That's not what God wants to do in Yerington. You know what I'm saying? These guys had a terrible temper. These are not weak people. But at the end of the story, we see their humility to the point that they lay down their lives for the gospel. They love Jesus with all their hearts. He's working a work of humility in them to bring healing to the nations. So 
Repentance is a powerful force. If somebody, if God is telling you to, I mean, if, you know, if I'm just preaching to you one of those sermons, repent, you sinners, and then I understand. Maybe you're not going to like that. But if God is talking to you about repentance, please don't reject that word. It's such a powerful thing. God, I just want to get my mind back to thinking the way that you think. So I want to give you four things about repentance, and I'm going to end with this. The first one comes from these verses that we just read, that repentance is a great adventure. You'll never be sorry if you follow Jesus. When Jesus starts out, he preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the first thing he does is he calls his disciples. And what does he call them to do? It says they were out there mending their nets or washing their nets. I can't remember. I have to look back over there, but it's okay. Either way, they're mending and washing their nets. It's a lot of work. You know, I mean, it's a lot of work if you take kids fishing, just trying to get the fishing line all untangled all the time. You know, that's a lot of work. Can you imagine the nets, though, for professional fishermen? This is a lot of work for them. And they're out there mending the nets, and they're not alone. It's a family corporation, okay? These guys are all related, and their dad's there, and it's this whole corporation. And Jesus, here comes Jesus. They've all been out with, with John the Baptist already. It wasn't like they didn't know about Jesus. They were there already. So, you know, they're, they're familiar. But now Jesus comes, and he, he says, hey, quit that job and follow me. And they just do it. They do it. I don't, I don't know what, what their dad's reaction was to this, what old Zebedee felt about that, because it doesn't tell us. But the fact that he's mentioned probably means he wasn't really happy. They just actually didn't say, okay, we'll hook up with you tomorrow, Jesus after we finished the nets. They dumped the nets where they were, and they left, and they followed Jesus. And they started the greatest adventure of their lives because they repented, because they turned and joined Jesus on his path. They went in a different way, and he said, you know what, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. I'm going to teach you how to do my work and catch men, catch people for my kingdom and bring them into the kingdom of God. The second thing about repentance, it's a great adventure, and it's a great exchange. Look with me at Matthew chapter 13. We're just kind of going through Matthew here. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And verse 45. Verse 45. I'm giving you four things, but there would be a hundred ways of saying this, but because it's all throughout the Gospels. But in verse 45... Um, actually, we'll go with verse 44, I'm sorry. It says, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is telling parables about what? He's telling parables about his advent, about his coming. When the king comes, that's where the kingdom is. And he says, the kingdom of heaven, remember, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he hid it again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So here are two parables. And they talk about this great exchange. This is what repentance is. Realizing that I found something that's more valuable than everything I thought was valuable before. Everything I thought was valuable before, it is valuable, but not in comparison to the kingdom of heaven, not in comparison to the call of God on my life, not in comparison to the work and the person of Jesus Christ in my life. And so in both of these parables, the interesting thing about them, in both parables, the person has to sell everything he has in order to get the treasure. You have to make an exchange. Repentance is an exchange. It's saying 100% no to something and 100% yes to Jesus. And the thing you're saying no to isn't necessarily bad. So often we've put repentance into that category uh, only of our really bad sins. But I've noticed in the scripture the really bad sins don't really hinder God as much as the stubborn disobedience in people's lives. You know, David has really nasty sin in his life, but he always repents. And he always says yes to God, and God uses him. Saul, who was king before him, didn't really have that kind of bad sin in his life. It's not written in the Bible anyway. But what he did have 
is a stubborn, stiff-necked refusal to do what God wanted him to do. And it broke him to the point of suicide, which he committed because his life was so broken because he wouldn't say yes to Jesus. So the repentance is saying no to things oftentimes that are really good, actually. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this merchant's other pearls. I'm sure they're beautiful. I'm sure they're wonderful. I'm sure he's been doing this for 40 years. But today, suddenly, he found a pearl that's worth more than his entire collection. And he cannot afford it unless he sells the entire collection. Here's the interesting thing in these parables. You can't have both. You understand? Repentance means you can't have both. You cannot have your cake and eat it too sort of thing. You have to sell everything to get the pearl. And in the first parable, it's really cool because the guy finds the treasure on a field. Now, see, the field doesn't belong to him. So the treasure doesn't belong to him. It's like he came to church and found Jesus. But he realized, man, I'm not one of these, these people. You know, I don't know anything about this. I don't even know if I like those people. But I like that Jesus I found there in those people and with those people. He doesn't even know what he's getting himself into. He just knows one thing. I've got to own that field. It's got to belong to me. So it says he goes and he sells every single thing he has. Now, when I read that story, sometimes I think, boy, did he had to sell his clothes too? He had to sell his shoes too? I mean, what did he have to sell? He had to sell every single thing he had. Otherwise, he couldn't afford that field. And the only reason he wanted the field is to get the treasure. And he's sneaky. It says he found it and then he hid it again. He didn't dare take it off the field. The cameras might catch him or whatever they had watching. But he hid it in the field, and then he just pretended like he just wanted to buy the field, but he didn't care anything about the field. He wanted the treasure in the field. And could you imagine the joy when he obtained that treasure? So repentance is a great exchange. Do you know that there is something and there is someone worth laying down your entire life for? We live in an age because of comfort and because of ease, I think, and maybe because of other reasons, where we've become really afraid of death. Really afraid. You know, I saw that when the COVID thing was going. People were just scared to the point of being paralyzed. Remember Tanya was sharing last week, and she was talking about how fear paralyzes us. And, and to the point of just being paralyzed in their lives. And what were they so scared of? I might die. Well, don't you know Jesus? I mean, you are going to die eventually. You do know that, don't you? But I haven't finished everything. Well, when you're 95 and you die, you're going to also say I haven't finished everything because hopefully you're continuing to do things. I didn't finish quilting or crocheting or whatever it is you're doing at 95. I don't know. But, you know, you do understand that death isn't the end. It's a graduation into the beginning. It's like you finish school, you get to go on. I'm not saying I want to die when I'm 58 years old because I don't. And I don't believe that I finished my race. But I don't want to be paralyzed by the fear of death. There are some things worth dying for. There are some things worth selling everything you have so that you can obtain it. And you don't want to be, as one pastor told me once, it was, I don't know, I've always remembered that advice he gave. I asked him, pray for me, pray for me. Let's see, I was uh, 27 and 27 years old, more than half my life ago, and I just believed that God was calling me to sell everything I had, literally everything I had, literally, and put a few things in boxes and move to Russia and become a missionary there. And I was asking this pastor that I really respected, the older guy, to pray for me and do you have any advice for me? And he said, well, one advice I can give you, Kevin, is you do not want to be 65 years old, I'm getting close to that now, but you do not want to be 65 years old, sitting on a rocking chair on your porch, thinking, I wish I would have at least tried. I wish I would have taken that risk. And regretting that you just kept your life, that you didn't sell everything you have in order to obtain what God has for you. I wouldn't be here today if I had not made that decision then. Probably I would be dead today, I don't know. But I wouldn't be. You don't want to go through life with those regrets. There are things worth selling everything you have. So repentance is a great adventure. It's a great exchange. Repentance is a great hunt. A great hunt. Matthew chapter 6. A lot of people in here like hunting. 
fishing. Somebody was asking me, I think just yesterday, we were talking about things you can do in the Arrington. I wasn't familiar with the Arrington. Well, if you don't like outdoor stuff, then there's probably not much to do in the Arrington. <laughs> so get to liking some outdoor stuff at least. But uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. Familiar verses, it says, but if God so clothes the grass uh, uh, of the field, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, and is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So before I read on, he says, this is what the Gentiles seek after. And it's true, isn't it? When he says the Gentiles, he means the world. That what the world seeks after is food, clothing, shelter, you know, wealth. Uh, and, and the main reason isn't for most people. Some people just want to control nations and stuff like that, I understand. But for most people, it has nothing to do with, I just need to be really rich. It's, I'm afraid that I won't have enough. You know, I need to be prepared when I'm retired, or what if I get cancer, or what if this happens or that happens, and my kids are going to need me, my grandkids are going to need me, and I want to provide for the future, and there's nothing wrong with that. He doesn't say there's something wrong with that. What he says is don't seek those things. What are you hunting for? Stop hunting for the things that the world is hunting for. Because the world is hunting after something that God already has given you. You don't need to go hunt a turkey. Maybe you want to hunt a chucker. Maybe you want to hunt a pheasant like Danny just did. And maybe you want to hunt a wild turkey, but you don't need to hunt a domesticated turkey because you can buy it a whole lot cheaper at Rayleigh's, right? God's already provided it for you. God's already provided these things for you, so stop hunting for the things the world's hunting for. But our minds are geared toward thinking that way. What am I going to do at the end of the month when the bills come due? And I don't have enough money to pay for that. Because things are rough, and they are rough. I just, I don't even want to look at how much money we spend on gasoline now. I mean, I think you feel the same way. It's just shocking. How can I be spending that much money on gasoline? And yet, you can't not buy the gasoline. You know, you've got to do things. And then I, and then I come to the end of the month, and literally, I'm like, wow, God, how did we pay for all that, God? I just don't even want to look at the bills. You're taking care of it. But somehow he keeps taking care of that, right? Because he loves us and he cares about us and he provides for us and he knows what we have need of. So he says, don't hunt for those things. Repent and begin to seek after the things that you need to seek after. And here's what it is. Seek first his kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Humble yourselves. Pray. Seek his face. Turn from your wicked ways. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. To daily seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. Over in chapter 7, it says in verse 7, same thing. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. It says, ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So you should be applying, we should be applying at least, minimum, as much effort to obtaining God's face and his righteousness as we are applying to paying our bills and getting everything in order financially in our lives. And really, we need to be applying a thousand times more effort than that. It won't happen just by default. It doesn't happen that God's blessings are poured out in our lives and that we're walking in the, in the fullness of his kingdom in our lives just because one day we prayed a sinner's prayer and one day we got baptized or because we go to church on Sundays. I mean, all that's a part of it, but this is a daily seeking after God. And it doesn't happen without effort. Jesus says that. We want to think of God in that way. Well, if God wants me to have it, he'll just give it to me. But that's not true. Jesus says, you need to ask for these things. James says, you have not. Why? Because you ask not. The only reason you don't have what God wants you to have in this life is because you're not asking for it. And when you're asking, James says, you're asking with the wrong motives. You want to use it for yourselves. You haven't humbled yourself. But if you'll humble yourself and ask God, if you will seek, if you will knock and knock and knock, 
like your kid's locked in the bathroom and he won't get out of the shower. He, she usually won't get out of the shower. You've got to get in there or something. But you'll knock and knock and knock. We actually have two bathrooms. That's not a true story here, but it's true in Russia. We only have one there. And if you'll knock with that, that same desire that I have to be where Jesus is, I have to have his blessings in my life. Jesus said the door is going to be open to you. And whatever door he opens, nobody can close it. I mean, what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, they give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, they would give him a snake. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And in another gospel, the words of Jesus are portrayed like this. How much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit? So really, this is so simple. Are we seeking after the Spirit of God? Are we seeking after the power, the move, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives? If we will seek, then he will come. If we grieve him, then he stays away. We're saved, but he stays away. And finally, repentance is a great adventure, a great exchange, a great hunt, and repentance is the big win. Everything you want in life comes through the path of repentance. Now let's read one more scripture. It's Philippians chapter 3, and I've referred to it already. But in Philippians chapter 3, it says in verse 8, in verse 7, whatever things Paul says were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And I've already talked to you about those things that he considered gain. They're all enumerated in the verses above. His education was higher than any of our educations, even if you got a PhD. His national pride was greater than our national pride as Americans. Everything he had in life, he said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. I sold everything I had to obtain the, the pearl of the greatest price. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, trash, dung, literally, is what it says, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, the righteousness, the face of God, his pleasure in our lives. Righteousness means to be in perfectly right relationship with God, which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. See the humility in this. Being conformed to his death. No fear of death. Perfect love casts out that fear. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The life of repentance is a life of running to the goal of the prize that God has for us. It is the big win, and the prize is to know him just as he knows me. The prize is to love him just as he loves me, to be made like Jesus, to become one with him, to live together with him. And that's the essence of true humility, that your life becomes the life of Jesus, that he fulfills his life in us, and we are one together with him, and we know him the way that he knows us. And Paul says, so I'm telling you, we can all say this, I haven't gotten there yet. Paul says that, I haven't gotten there yet. But it's the goal of my entire life. It's what I'm aiming for. It's what I'm running for. And it's the prize that belongs to me. And I will attain this prize because I will continue on this path of repentance, of counting everything that was a gain as a loss so that I might obtain the kingdom of God. Amen? So let's stand together, please. I just want to pray and have the worship team come up here. And, but, but hang on, after the worship song, I'll ask John and 
have others, whoever wants to, just come up and pray for our family as we're getting ready to leave. Father, I just thank you for this first Sunday in Advent. I pray, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts for the coming of Christmas, that it be more than Christmas lights, more than decorations at home, more than parties, more than plans, and all of that joy uh, is a part of it, Lord, but that in the midst of this, that we would truly prepare our hearts by humbling our hearts before you, that we would mourn, that we would weep, that we would recognize our poverty without you, Jesus, because, Lord, I don't know where we'll be if another year goes by without the rain. Where will we be if another year goes by with locusts devouring everything that we have and pestilence filling this land? Lord, we need you to heal our nation. We need you to heal our world. We need you to come again, Jesus. But it seems that the problem is not really and never really was in the world. It's not all the people in Washington. It's not all the people in Carson City. It's not all the people out there somewhere. It's right here in us that if we will humble ourselves and we will pray and truly seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. So Lord, teach us, lead us, guide us to live a life of repentance, of renewing our mind to your word following after you with all of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urington And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.